Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. To my right is my ever-expanding great library of RPGs. To hell and damnation with PDFs. Also, the collected grognard files, packed with treasures and memories from our gaming past, cataloguing with interviews and reviews the Dead Sea Scrolls of RPGs past. Here on my left is my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll just give her a tap. Ah, the eternal champion has appeared as Princess Di, not that one, who led the slave revolution at the Earth's core. More about that next time. It's fitting that she's appeared in this episode at the Earth's core was of course based on Edgar Rice Burroughs' 1914 novel of the same name, and the science romances of Edgar Rice Burroughs were an inspiration for the very special guest of this episode, the troll godfather himself, Ken Santandre. Ken is one of the founders of the hobby, so it's a pleasure to spend some time with him in the Troll Cave in Phoenix, Arizona, via Adlington. This interview is in two parts. In this part, we talk about Ken's origin story, his instincts for gaming and his love of literature. Next time, we'll bring the story up to date and talk about what Ken's doing now. Over the past few episodes, we've been looking at our influences. The books, the media, the general context that we were gaming within. Ken's RPG design has always been driven by finding fun and bringing the fantastic worlds he enjoyed reading about alive around the tabletop. His enthusiasm for literature is striking. I hope you enjoy listening to him speak as I did. Ken also developed Monsters Monsters, which he originally produced for Metagaming in 1976. It was later reprinted by Flying Buffalo, which is, in Ken's words, the flip side to Tunnels and Trolls, where the players get the chance to play the monsters. In this part of the episode, we go crazy for monsters. At Daily Dwarf returns with an essay that I'll read with his usual insight into how White Dwarf gave us direction about how to use monsters in our games. We have a brand new feature where a member of the Grog Squad will introduce their first, last and everything the RPG that they first played, the last one that got them excited, and their ultimate game. This time, we're pleased to have Monster Man himself, James Holloway, whose Monster Man podcast is all about monsters because monsters are great. Then we're in the room of role-playing rambling to talk about playing monsters as characters. Our resident rules lawyer, Josh Blythe, will be on hand to face the Games Master screen as we look at the random character creator for Ken's game, Monsters Monsters. No human scum in sight. 
Strictly Ilkin. I'll be back with the latest news. Until then, it's a monster episode, so ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box! Hello. Open Box is part of the podcast where we go back into Roleplane's past in order to understand the present. This time we have a very special guest. Live from his troll cave in Phoenix, Arizona, the troll godfather himself, Ken Santandre. Hi Ken, have you always lived in Phoenix? Pretty much. Uh, My parents met in Phoenix, uh, but I arrived in Ogden, Utah because... That's where my great-grandmother was living, and that's who they went to stay with when my dad had no work uh, in 1947, and uh, a baby was on the way. I was conceived in Phoenix. Uh, (laughs) Doing the math, uh, knowing their wedding anniversary and my (laughs) birth date, um, uh, I was conceived, you know, (laughs) a little before uh, the ceremony. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure that happens to a lot of firstborn I'm sh- children. I'm sure it does, yeah. Uh, so uh, I was conceived here. I arrived in Ogden. I was back here by the time I was one. I grew up here. Uh, we took family vacations. You know, we might spend a week or two in Massachusetts, my father's uh, home state, or in New Mexico, my mother's home state. But uh, we always came back here because that's where dad had the job. That's where our house was. That's where I grew up. We moved, oh, I don't know, six or seven times when I was a kid, always to someplace a little bit better. When I grew up, you know, uh, I made various attempts to break away and go someplace else. Uh, I lived in San Francisco in Berkeley for a summer, uh, trying to uh, get into that whole 1968, 69 uh, yeah. hippie scene. I just really didn't fit in. I never got a job. I came home, right? Uh, I went to Hawaii for a summer. Uh, I had a wonderful, wonderful summer in Hawaii when I was 21. I couldn't get a job. Uh, I hadn't finished my degree at ASU yet. I came home. <laughs> I was so dumb. What I should have done in retrospect, because I really liked Hawaii, uh, uh, was apply for a transfer to the University of Hawaii from Arizona State University. Of course. I could have transferred over there as uh, a junior, you know, for my senior year. And then I could have had a student loan or something and gotten uh, student employment there at the university and stayed in Hawaii. (laughs) Dumb. Dumb, 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 dumb. I came home. And uh, did you uh, it, did you become a librarian when you came back then, or uh, did you have other jobs? So how, how long have you been a librarian for? I became a librarian in 1972 hmm. when my friend Terry Ballard, who was what we call a library assistant, said, "Ken, you ought to work in a library." I've been doing various crap jobs <laughs> uh, at the time. I was building drugstores as temporary labor base, you know, and uh, driving trucks for my father's old company. And that was a pretty good job. I liked driving trucks. But every time I wrecked one of their trucks, they uh, fired me again. They would hire me again after uh, six months or a year because I was really good at driving trucks. I knew my way around. I was fast. I got things done. I didn't have any of the ordinary truck driver vices. You know, I didn't take smoke breaks or uh, get drunk or uh, anything like that. But every once in a while, I uh, got caught by being in traffic, you know, 10 hours a day, and something would hit me, and they'd lose a truck. So my friend Terry says, 
you ought to work for the library. I went, how do you do that, Terry? Because you already know, because you've got a job, right? He said, well, you have the college degree. You've already graduated from college. That's the minimum requirement. And then you go down to the city employment office and you take a test. And if you pass the test, they'll put you on a list. And when they need somebody, they call the people from the list for a job interview. Uh, he says, I said, well, what do I need to know to pass the test? He says, well, you can pass it. You've got a college degree. Uh, but the most important thing is um, if there's any questions about, you know, using your own independent judgment or siding with authority, you should always tell them that you're going to side with authority. <laughs> well, I, I took his advice, even though it rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, and um, I passed the test. Uh, I had the lowest score of anybody who passed it. But uh, there were only like six people who passed it, you know for the librarian's test. Uh, it was a library assistance test. It's not really a librarian yet. Uh, it's the right-hand man. Mm. It's the sidekick for a librarian. And so how did your uh, your books and your love of books uh, collide with gaming? So when did that start? My yeah. father taught me how to play chess when I was six years old. Yeah, We learned checkers and things earlier. All right. Uh, so when I was six, he taught me how to play chess. And then I taught all my friends how to play chess. We learned how to play Monopoly because Monopoly was like the only board game available uh, at the time. And Monopoly introduced the concept of dice. And I said, you know what, this game, um, if we didn't want to spend all this time, you know, making change from the bank and, and buying and selling stuff, this would make a really cool race game. <laughs> uh, so you start at the start. And you race back around to the finish line, you know, <laughs> by rolling the dice. Doubles add and roll over. There are obstacles. If you get stuck in jail, you have to spend a turn in jail. If you uh, landed on chance or community chest, you got to take one of those cards. And if it moved you around the board, it moved you. And if it did something with money, we just ignored that and threw it out. And uh, if you landed on a railroad, uh, you could uh, use the railroad to advance you to the next railroad stop. And then you had to get off and move up one to the next space. And so we, I turned Monopoly into a chase game. I was a big fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs, Tarzan, John Carter, Carson yeah. Napier, uh, David Innes. I'd read them all, right? Yeah. Lucidar, Venus, Mars, Tarzan's Africa. Burroughs wrote a story called The Chessmen of Mars, and he invented a chess variant called Jayton. And in Jayton, played with real live chessmen, who uh, stood on a board and uh, actually fought each other. When one piece took another, it didn't just move across the board and take the other. There was a fight. The winner claimed the, the square, and the loser was dead, or at least hauled off for medical repairs. And I'm going, what a great idea. I could do that with real chess. We'll let all the attackers have three dice, and we'll let all the defenders have two dice. And uh, if you roll doubles, you get to roll again and add it in there. You see something coming for yeah. Tunnel Central? Yeah. <laughs> and some point in time when I was in high school, or, you know, I read that, I invented combat chess. Uh, it completely changes the mechanic of the game if the loser, if the piece that's being taken does not get taken. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to risk your queen against a pawn uh, if the pawn can rise up and smack it, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And uh, the king 
uh, could fight his way out of traps. That sounds great. I'm gonna I'm gonna play that tonight. It sounds fantastic. It's uh, real but, simple. Yeah. The, win, the attacker gets three dice. The defender gets two dice. Game's not over until the king is taken. Also, at the same time, you were doing a lot of um, diplomacy games, weren't you, through the post? Didn't you do that? Um, I on? did do that. Yeah. Uh, diplomacy came much later. In 1973, I got married. It was, after a while, in 1973, I started asking myself, what's the difference between what I'm doing as an assistant and what he's doing as a librarian? Mm-hmm. Well, the difference is, he gets paid about three times as much as I do and does exactly the same work as far as I can tell. How come he's getting that money and I'm not? He has a piece of paper that says he's a librarian and I don't. How do you get a piece of paper? You go back to library school for a year. Uh, you take a master's level uh, program and you get a master's degree in library science. Then you've got this degree. You can show it to people when you're trying to get a job. They automatically start hiring you for a librarian instead of library assistant or clerk or anything. I went off in 1974. I got my master's degree. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went to the University of Arizona, which is in Tucson. So I spent a whole year basically in Tucson with trips back up on the weekends to see my wife in Phoenix. You know, I I pushed it. I I went to summer school. I started on at the January semester. I went to summer school in the middle. I took two course sessions of summer school with as much as I could pack into each one. And uh, then the fall semester, and I graduated in a year with my degree. Then I went back to Phoenix to get a library job, and it took me another eight months to do it. And that was when Tunnels and Trolls got written. Right. And and you've spoken about how... Um... You encountered that other game and how confusing the execution of the concept was, and you set about creating your own uh, role-playing game. What was it within the other game that you saw that um, captured your imagination? I think I've established that I was already a big fantasy fan, right? Yeah. Um, I started fantasy with Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, one summer, uh, the summer of the sixth grade. I lived in Sunny Slope, which was a part of Phoenix that was an independent town at that time. And I had a bicycle. And I would go out. I loved to just go out and ride my bicycle randomly around uh, towns and places and explore as far as I could on the bicycle and then come back. As I was riding, I saw a sign that said, Sunny Slope Public Library. I went, oh, library, I love libraries, because my fifth grade teacher had, uh, librarian had uh, shown me Andre Norton and science fiction and said, you'd like this kind of stuff, Ken. And uh, and she was right. I did. And I had started writing in grade school. Right. So, uh, oh, a library, a public library. I wonder what that's like. (laughs) Never saw one before. I, uh, I followed the signs. I found the library. I went inside. I looked at a, a whole huge house full of books. It was a house. It was an old Victorian-style house that had probably been sitting there for 90 years. Uh, they fixed it up and fixed it up and added electricity and running water and all that stuff. But uh, uh, I don't know when this thing was built, but it looked like something out of 1880s England with uh, a high roof and, you know, uh, weird shaped windows and you know uh, rooms that rooms off of rooms 
You'd, you'd go into one room and it would uh, lead to another room this way and a third room that way and and so on. It was great. And a big desk, big shiny mahogany polished desk by the front door where you check things in and out and stuff. And I went, can I get a library card? Well, yeah, here, sign this up. I got a library card. I looked all around and I found a book called Tarzan and the Ant-Men. Well, I'd already seen a few Tarzan movies, so this sounded great. I checked that one out. And in that book, Tarzan and the Ant-Man, Tarzan uh, runs into this uh, civilization of miniature people who are only this tall. Mm -hmm. And one of them is a super scientist who has a ray. And he shrinks Tarzan down to that size, too. And he goes into the cities, and he has adventures between the two uh, warring cities uh, with unpronounceable names now. I could pronounce it if I could see it, but I don't, can't remember. It's something like Valpamama Tarisku, right? <laughs> and, he, and he has this adventure down at Ant-Man's size, and that's pure science fiction or science fantasy. These guys fight each other with swords, but they have rays that can transform you from uh, uh, human-sized to ant-sized, right? I love that. Later, uh, when I was uh, riding around as a delivery boy, because during the summer, my father, would, who worked at, for a delivery company, would take me to work with him. And I would just spend the days riding around in the trucks with the truck drivers, helping carry packages and so on. I found a bookstore in Park Central, in the center of Phoenix. And on the bookshelf in Park Central were these Grosset and Dunlap editions of the first 10 Tarzan books. There was Tarzan of the Apes, and the Return of Tarzan, and the Son of Tarzan, and the Tarzan and the Jules Bopar and uh, Tarzan the Untamed, and Tarzan the Terrible, and all these books uh, were there, about 10 of them. All had these nice, colorful covers, and they were all hardback, and none of them I had ever seen before. And I went, I want these. I want to buy these. How much are they? They were $1.50. And uh, my allowance at the time was a quarter a week. I had to save up my allowance, not spend it on candy or anything else until uh, I had a dollar fifty. I got back to that bookstore and bought Tarzan of the Apes, the first book. And then after after I read that, I was going, I can't wait six or eight weeks to save up allowance for this. I started mowing lawns and stuff to, to make some extra money um, and acquired uh, the first 10 Tarzan books that way. In 1974, I was in library school for a year and I roomed with a man named Dick Vetter. Dick was a diplomacy master. He taught me the game, right? And he showed me all the fantasy variants of diplomacy that existed. Not just the ordinary World War I or Napoleonic sort of uh, diplomacy where there's just fleets and armies and uh, supports and attacks and stuff. Uh, but he showed me that you could put it on any kind of a map, Middle Ages diplomacy um, and so forth. And I love this idea. So I started making some of my own. I made an Aztec diplomacy because I love the Aztecs. Talk about it, your fantasy, weird fantasy civilizations. Uh, they were. And you're doing a supplement for that, aren't you, for the design mechanism for Mithras? Uh, yeah, I'm supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't done anything except an outline so far. Uh, and I made uh, a Hyborian diplomacy so that I could have Conan. And, and the Young Kingdoms as well, isn't it? And the Young Kingdoms, yes. And Barsoom. Uh, 
I made the most marvelous Barsoomian diplomacy variant. I either drew these up myself or I had somebody who was a little better uh, than me take my rough sketch and turn it into a real nice map. Uh, they all got sent off to the diplomacy bank that was somewhere. And if you searched the internet real hard, you might still be able to find one or two of them. But, uh, but see, I had been making all these games before Tunnels and Trolls. Yeah. I was deeply immersed in fantasy before Tunnels and Trolls. And then I started hearing about that other game through fandom, which I was already a member of, science fiction fandom. Because science fiction fandom communicated with zines, little things that you published yourself, cranked them out on a mimeograph machine originally. Then science marched on, and a wonderful thing was invented. The Xerox machine. Uh, and you could photocopy things. And then after a while, they figured out how to photo do it on both sides of the page. So I could take my zine that I had laboriously composed uh, with scissors and scotch tape and my old 1917 Remington typewriter that I bought for $10 in a Phoenix uh, antique shop when I needed, decided I needed to have my very own typewriter because I was going to be in college and you have to type your papers there. And it, uh, this typewriter was a left-handed Remington typewriter from 1917. And, uh, on the ordinary typewriter, when, uh, when the carriage reaches the opposite side, you would reach up with your right hand or something and do that and then spring back. But on the old, on the left-handed one, you had to reach up with your left hand because the carriage return was on the other side of the carriage. And the keys were all from 1917. Some of them were kind of a little worn down, you know. Uh, I show you a copy of first edition Tunnels and Trolls. Have you ever seen the first edition? Yes, I have, yeah, yeah. Then uh, if you looked inside, you just notice how some of the letters are rounded and a little hard to read and stuff. Because I typed it on that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's how the first edition of Tunnels and Trolls was typed up. Um, on. And how did you circulate that? Was that through the conventions? I read science fiction, right? Mm. And I knew other people who were in science fiction. And uh, inevitably, you meet somebody older and wiser who show, introduces you to fandom. Uh, Terry Ballard introduced me to fandom. Um because he was making his own little fanzines at the time. Uh, and he was getting, subscribing to fanzines from other people. Uh, I wrote a story uh, in which used L. Sprague de Camp's uh, time and space machine to go to uh, the Hyborian world and meet Conan. And I gave him the story. I said, here, Terry, see if you can sell this in a fanzine. And I'm going to Hawaii this summer. <laughs> and he knew a man named Frank Denton, who is still alive. And, uh, and Frank took the story and thought it was funny and published it. So that was my first published piece in a fanzine. And then I got in touch with Frank and um, Terry, and we wrote half a dozen more stories and made up a little book called Blundering Blades and published that in about 69 uh, or 70. Uh, we did um, typed all those up, got a few illustrations, made our own little book, Took it to a print shop, to a photocopy shop, and, and printed it. Uh, it was my first book, Blundering Blades. Had a picture of Terry and me on the cover. So I was already, I knew about fandom. Yeah. I got news from fandom. And the news from fandom was about this fantastic new game that people were playing, where you went into dungeons and you fought monsters and 
was called That Other Game. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of that, yeah. <laughs> right? So, but the initials were D and D. Cool. I have always loved alliteration. I was something of an amateur poet also. Uh, because words were my strong suit. Mm-hmm. I wasn't an athlete. Uh, I got good grades in school, but I never was quite at the very top. Uh, I, I heard about it through fandom, and I went, fantasy, uh, heroes, monsters, fighting. Uh, that sounds like exactly my kind of game. I'd already made up some board games of my own in which you got to play John Carter or Tarzan, you know, uh, running around a jungle uh, or on Mars. Uh, and rolling dice to f- see who won, I said, "I've got to, I've got to play this game. I've got to see this game." But there weren't any copies of it in Phoenix. Um, this game originated in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Uh, might as well be, you know, uh, uh, the Thule ara- Oasis in Australia. <laughs> um, but he got to Los Angeles. And I got to New York because these are the big places, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going, you know, as soon as I can find out what this game is like and get a copy, I will get one. We didn't even know where to sell one. It was 1975. Mm-hmm. The internet did not exist. <laughs> Imagine that, all you young people who are really <laughs> hearing this in the future, you know, on his blog <laughs> or podcast uh the internet did not exist in 1975 there were computers they belonged to large corporations and occupied whole huge rooms nobody had one on their desk when we wanted to type or print something we used a typewriter and we did it with our own fingers and we created things and there was no word prediction to help things go faster There were no cell phones. We called them walkie-talkies in those days. So 1975, no internet. Uh, No way of finding this game. No game stores. Imagine this, gamers. In 1975, if you wanted to buy a game, you went to a department store. Um, You went to Ward's or Dillard's or Macy's or... uh, I don't know what department stores are called in England... Uh, but you had to go to a large department store that had something of everything. And in the toy section, there might have been three games. There was Monopoly. There was uh, the thing where you flip the uh, the little chips into a cup. Uh, tiddlywinks. Tiddlywinks. There was Tiddlywinks. <laughs> there was Candyland. Um, and towards the end of that time period, oh, there was Checkers and there was Chess. And there was Chinese checkers, which is where you move marbles across the star-shaped board and jump over them to reach the other side. Right? And there might have been Parcheesi. Now we're stretching things. If you found a Parcheesi game, you were really good. <laughs> lucky. Right? That was it. That was gaming in 1974. And that... so, so, how did, so how did you find the game? It came to me. Right. Uh, in April of 1975, I was at my local gaming group, which was at Rick Loomis's house. Uh, Rick was had uh, just started a small gaming company called Flying Buffalo, where uh, you could uh, do computer gaming through the mail. And he spent an exorbitant sum 
amount of money to buy a 4K compu Raytheon computer so that he could uh, run uh, computer games for people and then mail them their results. And he still does this today. Yeah. But his computers are, you know, 1980, 1990 models now, not uh, <laughs> 1970 models for, for Raytheon. Because gamers know each other through fandom, through school, you know, I know Terry and Terry knows Steve and Steve knows uh, Bob and Bob's having a party where the gamers are getting together at his house that night and all of us went, right? And so circles of friends who played games together began to form around the mid-70s in Phoenix. One Friday night, because it was always Friday night, you didn't go on a weeknight because you had to go to school or work the next day. But most of us were off on Saturday and Sunday. One Friday night, I went to the game group, and they were playing Risk, which was a new game at the time and very popular. Uh, and it was full, and I was late. But Dave Slate had brought the white box edition of that other game. <laughs> and I said, oh, can I read this? I've been interested in this. He says, sure, help yourself. So while they played Risk, and I don't know who won, or even who was playing other than Dave and, and Rick, uh, I sat off on the corner and read as much as I could of the white box edition of that other game. Parts of it that didn't make any sense of, to me, um, I just skipped over. When they just were talking about uh, moving your characters in inches, I went, what? <laughs> what? I, I move my character from square to square or hex to hex. You know, I was already playing war games from Avalon Hill and stuff. But you move in inches? What, you're going to take a ruler and lay it out here? Yeah, that's what you did. Parts of that they were talking about uh, didn't make any sense to me. When he went off on long spiels about religion, how important the, the clerics and stuff were in the game, I went, and no. <laughs> uh, religion is very divisive. You know, people uh, wind up arguing and fighting about religion. Uh, I don't want that. Um, and so uh, at the end, after about an hour and a half of this, you know, and it was not well written. It was kind of hard to read and understand. And I was a good reader. Mm. Uh, so I prided myself on being able to force my way through anything. I read Ayn Rand, uh, The Last of the Mohicans. There's a sentence at the beginning of The Last of the Mohicans that is a page and a half long. <laughs> it's all one sentence. <laughs> and it never stops. But but this this the, the, the other game was uh, more impenetrable than that then yeah in places yeah it wasn't yeah. that long but it, they were talking about things that I'd never heard of polygonal dice I'm going how am I going to get a d4 yeah. uh, what would that even look like oh well I found out later that it looked like a pyramid and it has numbers at the vertices and I'm going that won't roll <laughs> I, I said. What a great idea. What a lousy execution. I will make a game that I can play. And I did. You know. So, yeah. Um, so that's how Tunnels and Trolls happened. You know, we've talked in the uh, podcast previously about how um, games had their basis in war games. But for me, Tunnels and Trolls has its basis in fiction. It's a fiction first game, isn't it? It's. 
and that's why I think it's so innovative and indie games that have come later have borrowed so much from it, it, it whether consciously or unconsciously they owe a certain debt to um, Tons and Trolls because it it, it allows the fiction to flow and uh, the mechanics are, are very simple to um, adapt to any situation. Yes. Um, as, you, as you've heard from all the books I've shown you and the stuff about my reading and so on, I was very much into stories and fiction and especially escape fiction. But I didn't like miniatures, you know. I was not into putting things on tables and moving them an inch at a time and uh, crawling around on the floor. Although my friend Mike Waters and I did have some fun games that way. Uh, he was very much into miniatures. I always left all the details to him. And yeah. um, so I wasn't into miniatures. Miniatures seemed like they just slowed everything down to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted a game I could play now without going out and acquiring a bunch of uh, toy soldiers and where am I going to get little dragons and orcs and trolls and all that stuff. It's all here in your head. You don't need that stuff. Absolutely. So I wrote a game that completely omitted that stuff. I'm going to read something from one of my favourite games here and a dedication in the front. So this book is dedicated to Dave Arnson and Gary Gygax, who first opened Pandora's box, and to Ken St. Andrea, who found it could be opened again. How does it make you feel that that's still at the front of every RuneQuest book? Uh, book that sold. I was very proud of that, you yeah. know. Um, and uh, both D Dave Arneson became my friend uh, hmm. later in uh, our lives. I got to know him through Rick Loomis, who knows everybody in <laughs> gaming, yeah, at least in American gaming. Uh, and uh, Dave and Rick would both be at uh, Big Origins game conventions, and you know, eventually I met Dave. Dave came and spent some time in Phoenix. We uh, I took him out to a go-go place one night. <laughs> I did. Uh, Dave Arneson, Mike Stackpole, and I went out to a place called Bourbon Street. They had a, there was another place across the street where you could do uh, penny ante gambling, or sit in the bar and watch go-go dancers. And we went over there after the uh, we got tired of the Bourbon Street one, and uh, and we did some of the the gambling and and stuff. And Dave was doing really well. And Mike went home, and I hung into, into the bitter end. And Dave says, oh, I, I can't stay up any longer, Ken. It's 2.30 in the morning or something. I've got to go. Here's all my chips, you know. Um, try to get that cheese dish. That was the grand prize. Um, and uh, I hung in for another hour. I never quite did manage to get enough for the cheese dish. So I spent all the last chips I had on go-go dancers and I uh, took, uh, uh, said, no, I'm sorry, Dave, you know, uh, uh, Sandra has your cheese dish. <laughs> so, um, so Dave and I became good friends and uh, Greg and I became good friends because I went, met him at a California gaming convention that I went to and I had already, you know, um, seen RuneQuest and, and loved it. But by that time, you know, I had tunnels and trolls. So I was didn't really have time to become deeply immersed in anybody else's role-playing game. But I could become good friends with the people who wrote them. Yeah. So Greg and I were good friends. And through Greg, I met Steve Perrin. And we became good friends, and so forth. Uh, I never became good friends with Gary. In fact, I, haven't, I never met Gary in person. I never spoke to him. He never spoke to me. Uh, I would see him. 
at conventions once in a while. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk. What um, distinguishes uh, Tunnels and Trolls and Stormbringer is a sense of humour as well. That comes out through play. It's like the the sense of humour is like built into the mechanics. I mean, oh, it's vitally important. Uh, uh, laughter yeah. will make you live longer. Well, say- laughter, will, laughter helps in almost any situation, even if it's a grim, bitter, sarcastic laugh. You know, uh, a laugh is better than a sneer. A laugh is better than crying. Um, uh, uh, the people uh, I most admire in entertainment, if I was to go movie stars, uh, they would almost all be comedians, you know? Yeah. Uh, and in a sense, they were comedians even if they didn't know they were comedians. Yeah. Uh, for example, if you've ever seen Tarzan the Ape Man with Johnny Weissmuller, uh yeah. Some of the stuff that he does in that movie is just hilariously funny. Well, as, as well, uh, take that you fiend in combat is more fun than saying magic missile, isn't it? So. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a lighthearted approach yeah. to uh, to combat. Yeah, uh, and it was uh, I was writing satire in high school. I was reading Gulliver's Travels. Yeah, Jonathan Swift. Jonathan Swift, right? Yeah. Uh, if it made you laugh, which uh, Gulliver's Travels certainly should, so much the better, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. So I already knew that I was sort of satirizing that other game with my version, yeah, my Balmorized version that only used D6s. <laughs> so why not put funny names in? Why not call the healing spell uh, that fixes your wounds and stuff a uh, poor baby spell? Because yeah. after all, that's what you say to you know an injured pet or a... Um, your boyfriend or oh, you poor baby, yeah, yeah. So, oh, rub it well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, so yeah, the humor is vital to me. Yeah. Um, do I seem like a guy who goes around crying all the time, or no, a guy who's in a pretty good humor, who laughs yeah. a lot? Well, I, we'll, we'll we'll draw to a close soon. There's just a couple of things I wanted to uh, urge people to, if they can, follow you on social media because I find you a daily post of wandering through Phoenix and uh, capturing some of the things you find there very uh, uplifting. Uh, when I see pictures of uh, uh, things that you spotted and uh, you celebrate celebrating life, uh, so it's really good to see. I do it mostly for myself. Yeah, you know, to, um, to get those steps, I'm using Facebook to hold myself accountable. So yesterday, I only got five thousand steps, um, but I got five thousand because I'm trying. Uh, I only got three thousand at the gaming convention I was at, so I went out at night and walked another two thousand, you know, to to at least kick it up to two two miles for the day instead of one mile. Some people have told me that it helps inspire them to walk and to do be more active. Yeah, and if you do that, you will live longer. If you live longer, you can have more fun. Simple equation. <laughs> well, when when it's uh, when it's gloomy and dark here, I love to see uh, pictures of Phoenix and the bright sunshine and some of the curious things that you find on your travels. It really it lifts my spirits. So thank you for that. I got to go to England once. It rained on me almost the entire time <laughs> uh, that was there. Uh, that's uh, the. Second day I was there, um, uh, my host took me to uh, a drugstore and I bought a transparent raincoat. 
and I wore it for the the rest of my trip. Thank you very much, uh, Ken, for uh, spending the time with us, and happy birthday. Uh, my real birthday is April 28th. My gaming birthday and Facebook birthday is April 1st. And it's something about April Fool's Day that just appeals to me. So, so I put that on the internet in lots and lots of places, and people have called me up and they says, your birthday is April 1st, and I laugh at them. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, presumably through you to anyone who uh, sees this podcast. You know, my greetings. Try Tunnels and Trolls. Try Monsters, Monsters. Try Fours. It's pay what you want. Even if you don't like any of those, keep on gaming because, you know, gaming is the greatest thing around. <laughs> Next Thanks. sex. Uh, but <laughs> sex and gaming actually go good together. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. Thank you very much, Ken. White Dwarf! By at Daily Dwarf from Twitter. Monsters, monsters, and indeed monsters. Wait a minute. And we already looked at monsters in the pages of White Dwarf. Well, yes, we did trip the light fantastic through the many weird and wonderful creatures of the Fiend Factory back in the Grogpod episode about AD&D. But it turns out that White Dwarf writers had more to say on the subject of monsters. So, in honour of this month's guest, Ken Santandre, one of the first game designers to try and see things from the monster's point of view, let us look in a little bit more detail about some of the White Dwarf articles. Lou Pulsifer, actually, that's Dr Pulsifer to the likes of you and me, kicked things off in issue 17 with My Life as a Werebear. Starting with the question, if a player wants to be a monster, why not? Following some brief advice on maintaining game balance, he then presented four D&D monster character classes, what an eclectic mix they were. The Lamassu, the Werebear, Blink Dogs and Stone Giants. And, well, there wasn't much more to the article than that. It was more of a taster, an introduction to the idea of playing a D&D monster and a full-blown examination of the concept. I would have liked to have heard Lou's thoughts on what a player's motivations might be for adventuring as one of the monster types or what distinct flavour they might bring to the game. Instead, the good doctor very much focused on the game's mechanics relating to each monster, taking pains to point out that none of them could become barons. Was becoming a baron a thing in the early D&D? There were some clever touches in these mechanics, though. You could play a pack of blink dogs rather than an individual one, so the level advancement was achieved through extra dogs being added to the pack. Lou Pulsifer took another brief look at monsters, this time from a Dungeon Master's point of view, in part two of his series, A Guide to Dungeon Mastering. Harking back to D&D's origins, he advanced against relying on tables for the generation and placement of monsters in the dungeon, advocating instead a more thoughtful approach that echoed the ecological dungeon concept discussed in Roger Mewson's article back in Issue 27, by considering the locations of different creatures and how they might interact, fight and maybe cooperate with each other. The Dungeon Master could avoid the nonsensical zoo dungeon. Reading the article again recently, one statement from Lupulsfer jumped out at me in particular. A Dungeon Master can kill any number of player characters if they want to. This is not 
the object of the game. Turns out you learn something new every day. The first article to really put the focus full square on making the most of your monsters was Oliver MacDonald's Monsters Have Feelings Too, from issue 38. The first thing that struck you about the feature was the arresting image by Mr Monster himself, the great Russ Nicholson. A goblin bleeds out into the ground as a party of adventurers wipe their swords clean and recede into the distance, no doubt already contemplating their next kill. It made you feel sorry for the little chap. Really? Who'd ever feel sorry for a goblin? Oliver MacDonald wondered why monsters couldn't use the same devious tactical planning as player characters often did instead of just standing around as simple stat blocks waiting to be slaughtered. He offered three general rules for monster behaviour. 1. A monster will value its life as much as a player character. 2. No monster should attack without having a known reason for doing so. With the corollary that if a monster could achieve its aims non-violently, it should do so. 3. Whatever applies to the PCs should also apply to the NPCs and monsters. Was this just stating the obvious? Did it really necessitate an article even back in 1983? Well, I think it did. Even now it bears repeating. It's all too easy as a dungeon master to fall back on the default fight to the death approach when running monsters. Oliver MacDonald made a very persuasive case in just a few pages, making the point that, taking his three rules together, even the so-called mundane monsters like Kobold and Trolkin were rejuvenated and could pose a serious challenge once more for the experienced player character. As I was rereading the article, my first game of 5th edition D&D came to mind, I hadn't played D&D since 1st edition, way back in my time in the Deep Freeze TM. Playing D&D once more after all these years, it felt familiar, and yet excitingly different at the same time. That unfamiliarity was due in large part to the monsters we encountered, particularly our first run-in with a group of goblins. I thought I knew what to expect, a nice easy fight to ease us into the scenario. But these goblins were skilled in ambush, never staying still long enough for us to attack. And it very nearly brought us to an early TPK. Better luck next time, Dirk. Somewhat ironically, not long after, we debated long and hard about dispatching a sleeping goblin. Who'd feel sorry for a goblin? A bunch of middle-aged blokes, that's who. In the same issue, following on directly from Olive MacDonald's article, we had extracts from the Uruk High Battle Manual, translated by friend of the show, Graham Davis. This was a collection of sound advice for dungeon denizens who wished to take the fight back to those pesky raiding parties of adventurers who were perpetually stealing their stuff. Intelligent use of terrain, different troop types and spellcasters were all covered. Keep those troop in line, though. The advice on dealing with failing morale was pretty ruthless. 
a dead Uruk High was better than a retreating Uruk High. Short but effective. This article reinforced many of Oliver MacDonald's ideas with plenty of handy hints that every self-respecting Uruk High should know. I couldn't help but feel that if Soroman had the redoubtable Mr Graham Davis as his loyal lieutenant, Helm's Deep might have turned out very differently. In issue 46, Phil Palmer took a look at the old staple, wandering monsters in D&D. In his article, Strangers in the Night, he wondered how wandering monsters could be made more interesting. Something more than just an inconvenience for slow, cautious parties, not just a nuisance to be dealt with as quickly as possible. In this vein, he offered a number of interesting ideas, centering on the selection of monsters that complemented the scenario's theme, justifying their presence rather than just relying on random roles, echoes of the ecological dungeon once more. To mix things up, Phil Palmer suggested throwing in the occasional friendly wandering monster and switching to random incidents rather than monsters, examples such as cave-ins, earthquakes and the player characters stumbling across an ongoing fight and then having to choose which side to join. We're all disgusted. For me, this article didn't really make much cohesive sense as Oliver MacDonald's earlier article, but at least it did achieve its aim of making the Dungeon Master think a bit more creatively in their use of wandering monsters. It was also accompanied by more great Russ Nicholson art. At the dungeon intersection, it had a group shot of various monsters who just wandered into each other. Suddenly, their differences were forgotten as they all stared out of the page. At you, gulp. The thoughtful approach to monsters was very evident in the three-issue series on goblins in RuneQuest by Ian Bailey. It started in issue 47. Goblins in RuneQuest? Is nothing sacred? Don't worry, Glorantophiles. Though not explicitly mentioned, I think this was targeted at the quest world setting, which was very much a thing at the time. The first part, Travels of Torak Truai, described the three main races of goblins, lesser, common and hobgoblins. In typical RuneQuest fashion, the article extended way beyond the simple list of game statistics. Ian Bailey gave us an evocative history of these semi-civilised, tribalistic races, the hierarchies, festivals and hunting practices, and their evolution into various subcultures. Spriggans, mountain and hill dwellers, wisps, marsh goblins and forest goblins. The inclusion of specific in-game mechanics for each subculture meant that they were well delineated and offered many ideas for their use in adventures. This was a very well written, thought-provoking article which cast goblins not in the traditional evil critters of from D&D but as twilight inhabitants of the margins of civilization. Great stuff, with a much wider applicability than just RuneQuest. The two follow-up articles, Crom Crutch and The Goblin Cult of Kernu, detailed the two main goblin cults. The Kernu cult had a heavy Celtic influence, an aministic cult of sacred grounds and standing stones, 
with echoes of the wild hunt. Rules for the cult membership were laid out, along with information specific to rune lords and priests. It was an interesting approach to fuse Celtic myths with goblins, maybe not an obvious association, at least given how goblins were now perceived through 40-odd years of D&D history, but one that worked here, even if some of the sections felt a bit rushed. If Kernu was given the cults of Prax treatment in this article, then Crom Crutch was very much of the cults of terror counterpoint, with Kernu being seen as being failed to come to the aid of the goblins when they were driven into the margins. The hobgoblin demon cult of Crom Crutch rose with an excessive hatred of mankind. This ruthless, savage cult revelled in the death and destruction with their deity, the worm god of the night, appropriated with the human sacrifice. This cult also showed heavy Celtic influence, albeit its darker side. A couple of nasty rune spells were included for the cult's priests, including summoning a vicious winged serpent known as the Horror of Crumcrutch, invoked through the use of a wicker man, no less. Lovely. Fast forward a couple of years, and issue 71 gave us two articles to sink our fangs into. In that issue's Fiend Factory column, another friend of the show, Acrostics fan, Ian Marsh, discussed what makes an interesting monster in Just Good Fiends. This focus specifically on advice for creating new monsters. Ironic, really, given that Fiend Factory would be canned a couple of issues later but also reiterated the concepts from these earlier articles. Ian advised writers to consider how the monster would be used, covered in more depth in the issue's companion piece, what creative spark it could bring to the game, and to think about how the creature would appear to the players. It should evoke emotions like fear, revulsion or wonder, not hilarity, unless it's a duck of course. Care should be taken to ensure that the monster fitted in with the background of the game, even within the fantasy genre. The companion article in that issue was Monsters Have Feelings Too, Too, from Oliver MacDonald, revisiting and expanding on his earlier article back in issue 38. He argued that adding more and more exotic monsters to a game was only a temporary solution to player boredom. Instead, Ascribing believable motivations to monsters, even just animal instincts, was key. He illustrated his points well through an example of that old standby, the Orc Raiding Party. By looking in detail at what would motivate such a group, Oliver MacDonald generated a number of interesting scenario ideas from his discussion, highlighting the fact that the expediency of running away gave monsters the chance to fight another day returning to taunt the players time after time. Another satisfying article delivered in just a couple of pages. It rounded out the discussion on believable monsters nicely. The only downside was that it didn't have a Russ Nicholson illustration. Shame. I think we could all do with a bit more Russ Nicholson art in our lives. First, last and everything... Hello and welcome to My First, My Last, My Everything, 
I'm James Holloway, and I'm the host of Monster Man, a podcast about monsters, because monsters are great. Dirk asked me to talk in this inaugural episode about the first game I ever played, the last game I played, and the game that is my everything. These are pretty tough questions, and I'm going to cheat by responding to them with, uh, with more than one answer. Let's start with my first. It's Northern California in 1986 or 1987, and I'm at summer camp. Now, this isn't the summer camp that you think of when you think of kind of, uh, you know, summer camp movies with the cabins and the woods. I'm only probably about eight years old, and this is uh, what they call a day camp. You know, just a place that kids go so that their parents don't have to be home all day every day during the summer holidays. And there's painting, and there's games, and there's whatever activities, and one of the camp counselors wants to run a role-playing game. Now, I had already heard of role-playing games, and I knew that they were something that excited me, even though I couldn't really explain why. I might have been nine, and I'm not precisely sure. Anyway, doesn't matter. The game that this counselor had was called Tunnels and Trolls, and I don't remember anything about the first scenario that we played. I don't even remember what my character was. I do remember that there were wizards, and there were warriors, and there was the Wiz War, who was... You know, a bit of both. And I remember the sheets of graph paper. For some reason, there were lots and lots of sheets of graph paper at that camp, probably for one of the arts and crafts projects. And we used those, of course, to make dungeons. I did not understand that game, and I don't think I played it well. Remember, I was only very young, but I loved it. And I pestered my parents into taking me to the game store in town. And this was kind of during the mature period of the Dungeons and Dragons craze. It was no longer the fad that it was, but there were two gaming stores in my hometown. But when I got there, they did not have Tunnels and Trolls. And so rather than leave empty-handed, I bought a different role-playing game. I say bought, my parents bought for me, a different role-playing game, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Other Strangeness RPG. And I feel like, you know, most people start out with Dungeons and Dragons, or maybe if they're a little bit younger, the World of Darkness, or something like that. If you start out with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and other strangeness role-playing game, you're going to grow up with a particular relationship to RPGs, one in which you just kind of gave up long ago on the idea that the rules necessarily have to make any kind of sense. Because, bless them, they don't. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Other Strangeness RPG is a delightful game with an excellent character creation system created, unlike most of the rest of the system, by the late Eric Wojcik. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. In it, as the name implies, you play a mutant animal of some kind who has taken up a career of crime fighting using their martial arts skills. I mean, actually, there are many more possibilities than that, but that's the default assumption, and that's how we played it. The killer app for this game are the series of supplements that take the game into a post-apocalyptic setting where gangs of mutant Gila monsters and opossums roam the highways of post-apocalyptic California doing battle with the villainous pig biker gang known as the Road Hogs, and it genuinely is pretty terrific. Shame about the system. All was not lost, though. I did eventually get a copy of Tunnels and Trolls for a subsequent Christmas, and I still have that copy to this very day. Um, That classic fantasy RPG by Ken St. Andre, edited by Liz Danforth, and with illustrations by Josh Kirby. And my copy is creased all to heck. It's the digest size paperback edition. Um, That was kind of an attempt to uh, cash in on the popularity of gaming books. Um, a lot of classic tunnels and trolls solo adventures and is all held together with sellotape. It's probably more sellotape than book now. Um, and I will never part with it because I love it. I did get rid of my original TMNT rulebook at some point. I have three copies, but none of them have my character Eric the Elk in the back. So I know they must not be my old one. 
I don't know what happened to it. I have all my other old supplements, so bit of a mystery. The last game I played was just uh, as I'm recording this the day before yesterday, and that was a session in my ongoing Other Dust campaign. Other Dust is a post-apocalyptic role-playing game created by Kevin Crawford, and basically a spin-off of the game Stars Without Number. It's a very kind of classic Gamma Worldy Fallout-y post-apocalyptic game that I'm running anyway, in which a ragtag band of misfits are trying to survive in the wastelands and eventually even build a community. They've got a little fledgling village full of hopeful survivors and refugees from other places, and they're trying to make a go of it. In this episode, they arrived at a new settlement that they've been interested in exploring. Um, they had a fight with some mutant pigmen. Uh, this seems to be a recurring theme for me. I don't know why. And they prepared to descend into the depths of the underground tunnels, which were once the subway of the city that was there before the apocalypse. And they learned about the religious faith of the local settlers, who basically sort of worship trains. They, uh, they had the local cleric explaining to them what the, the commandments meant. And one of the players said, uh, Oh, and, uh, and I suppose you all have to mind the gap. In my best Christopher Lee impression, said, Yes, for the gap signifies the difference between evil and righteousness. And that was a lot of fun. I adore post-apocalyptic gaming. I, I use a lot of miniatures. I don't think they're necessary for role-playing games, but I just enjoy making them and painting them. And post-apocalyptic games are great for people who like playing with miniatures because the whole point is that everything is crummy and rusted and broken and, and ramshackle and so you can just kind of slap things together you know if you stick something together out of a bunch of different bits and it doesn't look quite right well that's on brand i love other dust because it's a simple system that nonetheless has a lot of great tools for generating dramatically interesting games and not to go into too much detail but like stars that number it has a setting generation system that's a bit like traveler but if traveler focused on elements that were going to be relevant to sort of plot and gameplay rather than just the physical description of the environment um and uh, i really recommend checking it out there is a free version of stars in that number it's up on drive through take a look at it i think if you run any kind of science fiction game those tools can come in handy even if you're not going to run stars of that number itself and then other dust is just kind of the same thing but for the post-apocalypse. My everything was really hard to choose. It seemed obvious to me that it would be Call of Cthulhu, the classic um, investigative horror game, probably the game that I've, well, I was about to say the game that I've consistently played the most of. I'm not sure that's true, but uh, maybe the one I have the fondest memories of. Also, because I went to university in the 1990s and I kind of stayed in that community until quite recently, um, I've played a lot of World of Darkness games, although I don't know that I would say I have a particular favorite. But in the end, I thought that I had to choose the original Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 1st Edition 1978 Monster Manual. Not because of any one thing that stands out about it, but just because of what it represents. I mean, I have a podcast about monsters, so no surprise, I like monster books. Just me going through classic gaming monster books and talking about each of the monsters in turn. And one of the wonderful things about the Monster Manual is that it's so varied in its influences. There are things swiped from literature, from folklore, from mythology and religion. There are things that are completely made up out of the whole cloth. You know, there are things based on cheap plastic toys that Gary Gygax bought and messed about with exacto knives and hot glue guns. And to me, that bricolage, that combination of different influences is something that is so special about role-playing games. I love this magpie creativity, this idea of taking all the different bits and pieces of things, perhaps things that were important to you, perhaps things that just happened to fall under your gaze, and stitching them together into something that is a shared experience that's both creative and fun. And to me, you know, for all its faults, 
the monster manual symbolizes that combination of acquisitiveness and inventiveness. Um, and that's why that's where I started Monster Man. Anyway, thank you very much to Dirk for asking me to contribute this short segment. If you'd like to hear more Monster Man, you can find it online at monsterman.libsyn.com or at patreon.com slash monsterman. Thanks for listening. Games Master Screen! Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. I'm joined by Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Now, what I've done is I've put this Games Master screen between us yeah, okay. because we're going to turn monstrous. And I want to have this screen <laughs> yeah. just in case okay. you leap across and uh, bite my neck or something. Tell throw out. Yeah. In a monstrous way. We're talking about monsters. Monsters. Monsters, monsters. Monsters, monsters. More yeah. declarative yeah, repeating than yourself. Yeah. Monsters, monsters. More declarative. Monsters, yeah. monsters. Yeah. Have you ever played a monster? Um, y- yes. When, uh, was well, it, when, when was it? When was the first time you played a monster? Well, it, you see already. It depends what you mean by monster, doesn't it? I, I suppose I played the Dark Troll in RuneQuest. In the very, very early days of RuneQuest, I played a, a Dark Troll because I realised the Dark Trolls were pretty tough. Yeah. <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> There's no downside to a dark troll, is there? You can't yeah. see in the, in the. They have trouble seeing in the sunshine, is that right? Yeah. But it's so They what? can use a maul. They can use a maul to get that two point skin armour, don't they? Yeah. On top of any other armour they wear. They're not stupid. They're as clever as a human. And they're bigger and stronger and all round better. So I played a dark troll. Yeah. But I, I think it's fair to say I only played a dark troll because I just thought, well, my characters keep getting their left leg hacked off in RuneQuest and dying. So if I play one of these dark shots, that won't happen because they're quite tough. And I don't think it did. I think it pretty much pasted everyone he met. <laughs> so that was the appeal of playing a monster. But whether he was really a monster, it is in a way, but they're not. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because you, you're right mm. when sometimes when you see in games, like when we when we did that in RuneQuest, that was pre-Troll Pack, wasn't it? And we'll, we'll come on to that in yes, a bit. Yes, yes. Pre-Troll Pack. Well, Troll Pack was a supplement that was produced by KLCM by Sandy Peterson and uh, Lynn Willis, which really gave all the ecology, didn't it, yes. of trolls? Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll come on to that. Before that, um, um, a troll in that thing was just like a series of features, wasn't it? And yes, um, yeah. benefits and pluses. Yeah. True, yeah. And, and I suppose it's that distinction, isn't it, between a monster and a non-human yeah. race. So, yeah, you can play like a, an elf and a dwarf, but you people t- don't cook, don't clap, count them as monsters. So even, even a half-orc, I mean, in D&D you're playing a tiefling, but they, even they're not considered monsters. Yeah. They're so kind I'm, of monstrous, but they're not monsters. But I play the tiefling, and, um, you know, even now, so this is what... Um, 30 odd years later mm. I'm playing that tiefling to me it's just a series of features I don't, there's nothing about it no, that no, no. I've, I've anthropomorphised this uh, demon type yeah. creature yeah and I think that's true of, of in role playing games generally there is a habit of the non-human player character races so you play a dwarf and you're not playing a, a monster you're not playing an alien creature you're playing a grumpy Scotsman who's very short that's what you're really playing isn't it yeah. that's how people play dwarves they'll play the Scottish grumpy grumpy Scotsman grumpy Scotsman with, with small that, that's not really a monster is it it's just a well it depends well it depends where it comes, <laughs> I suppose in, in certain circumstances enough iron, iron brew down them perhaps but um, yeah it's not a monster is it I think there's a, there's a different. I was playing a dark troll in RuneQuest. Felt a bit monstrous, but but ultimately, 
they're not really monsters no, in RuneQuest. No. In Galantha, they're not, are they really? The first, uh, the first monster I played mm. was uh, a goblin in, uh, oh, right, in yeah. TNT. That's more of a monster. That is more of a monster, I suppose. In uh, uh, Goblin Lake, which is a solo adventure. Mm. And what that does is, is more than we were doing in the games around the table, it makes it feel like you are a living, breathing goblin. Yeah. yeah. Hurless with a sunken chest and a pot belly. Is that how it's described? Yeah, preparing yeah. me for middle age. That's, I was going to say, that's kind of like us now. <laughs> we, we turned into monsters. But when I was um, 12, <laughs> when I was 12 playing that goblin, that was, I wouldn't normally do that through choice because mm. what I wanted to do is a bit of escapism. I wanted to be, you know, a cup-jawed thing because I love monsters, but what I loved about doing was mm. encountering monsters. Yeah, I, I, and that's true. When, when we were younger, role-playing games had a degree of... At a greater degree of wish fulfillment about them. so the idea that you were the hero, you know, so the 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 player, the character you played, somehow felt like it was you. It wasn't you. It felt like it was you. I mean, that's how they were sold, isn't it? You can be the hero. That was the one of the kind of strap lines, wasn't it, of some role playing games, you know? But it was playing a monster that was truly monstrous and truly weird was was odd. It was like. Um, Best example back in the day, I think, was Dragon Newts yeah. in RuneQuest. I remember we got Dragon Newts, got RuneQuest, and we looked, looked through the rules, and Dragon Newts, oh, these look interesting, you could play a kind of lizard man. But then, oh, you read a little bit about them, and you thought, oh no, they're a bit weird and alien, aren't they, Dragon Newts? You yeah. don't really want to play a Dragon Newt. That's a bit odd. It um, became slightly unappealing, I think, that, yeah. that sense of otherness about them that didn't fit with, with wanting to be Conan the Barbarian. And that's what happened with the trolls. You start playing the troll the minute we've got troll pack. Yes. Because yeah. what you realise is, oh, actually, there's an old ecology and a way of behaving and yes. a weirdness and a strangeness. Yes. Which, which Eating mushrooms yeah, and, and, and riding beetles. And, <laughs> all that. Which, which somehow, I mean, now it's, now it perhaps would be more interesting, but I think back then it was, it was a bit off-putting, wasn't it? Because yeah. you thought, well, I don't want to be a... But we played it, haven't we? we it, you know, it seems uh, wrong to say that troll pack. When I got it, I was really disappointed with it, and really disappointed with it because I thought it was going to be another campaign like Borderlands, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I was rather hoping that it was going to be fighting trolls. You know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. yeah. A series of seven adventures where you and it wasn't like that at all. You no. know, it, it was it was about encountering top trolls and experiencing the otherness of them. Yeah, and I think the same was true at the time of uh, Traveller, wasn't it? The alien races in Traveller were different. There was a sense of that an Aslan, the lion people, were um, they had a culture that jarred a little bit. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, because I think for the colour, giving colour in the game, it's a good thing. Yeah. But from a player character perspective, it jarred slightly. Yeah. But no, being more mature players, obviously, because yeah. we were kids then, weren't we? <laughs> yeah. Um, it is appealing to play mm. yeah. in that game. Yeah, it is. I think it's, it's changed a bit because now you want to explore playing someone very, very different to yourself, something very different to yourself. And I think that's what I find frustrating about playing the tiefling in um, D&D, in that it doesn't feel very much different. No, no, and, and that I think that's true of, of D&D generally. I mean, we're, we're playing Dragon Heist, aren't we, at the moment? Yeah. So we're in Waterdeep, and 
there's lots of non-humans, so there's lots of half-orts, lots of halflings and gnomes and all that, but really they're just like humans of a particular type. So as I said, dwarves are like grumpy, grumpy fellas, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Grumpy, bearded fellas, that's what they are. Uh, elves are always a bit aloof, they're slightly aloof and haughty. And then you get halflings who are all cheerful, you know, and, and then... So they're, like, they're just like humans, but one particular human trait emphasised, aren't they? Yeah. That's how they are in D&D. It's not, not really monsters at all. No. Let's have a look at this, then. This is Monsters, Monsters, hmm. from uh, Ken St. Andre. Yeah. Uh, published um, way, way back, predating... Vampire the Masquerade. Yes. I always want to call it Vampire of the Masquerade. Why? I don't it's know. not called that. I know, I think, <laughs> it, I think it, I've got it in my head that it's uh, pompous and putting the of in it, Vampire of the Masquerade. Makes it more pompous. Maybe even more pompous, yeah. Yeah. But I, Is it pompous? I don't know, I've never right, played it. Tell us. I'm not, I'm not play, I'm not played it, but it seems... You get a pompous letter pompous. telling me it's not pompous. So... Monsters, Monsters, this was designed to be the flip side of Tunnels mm. and Trolls. Yeah. And yeah. the rules are essentially Tunnels and Trolls, so yes. you can play yeah. uh, the, 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 you know, the same saving throws and all that. But in this one, you play uh, Monsters, or the Ilkin. The Ilkin, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting differentiation, isn't it, calling them Ilkin? Uh, kin and well, yeah, Tons Tons and Trolls is is very uh, sort of monster friendly, isn't it? Because in uh, in Troll World, you get City of Kazan, the city of monsters, don't you, and that kind of thing. So you get a city where you can be a monster and live as a monster amongst other monsters, yeah. who are called the Ilkin, not not monsters. But yeah. yeah, there's a kind of uh, relativism. There is, us. and I think that's sort of grown over time with TNT. That re- monster relativism, you know, these are not monsters. They're just not. They're just, just misunderstood. They're just misunderstood, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. They're just misunderstood, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because there's no. Again, there's no. I suppose it's quite telling, isn't it, that right from the very start, D and D had alignment. So monsters are generally evil, whereas tunnels and trolls didn't have alignment, did it? No, it never had alignment. So there was the idea that well. These monsters, are, are, what, are, what are they doing? They're just trying to live their own life in the dungeon and you go along and kill them. Yeah. And <laughs> but but like, D&D, mor- D&D, strangely, moralises monsters, doesn't it? It gives yeah. a moral twist on a monster. So it legitimises you going in with your sword and killing it because it's chaotic evil. It's stamped as it's a bad thing. Yeah. Whereas in Tunnels and Trolls and, and in other games, that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, and, but that's where monsters, monsters was the first germ of this idea that mm, yeah. monsters will have enough eventually and come out of their lives, yeah. come out of their dungeons. Yeah, yeah. Stop killing us for, an ex- for experience points. And start <laughs> marauding and uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. turning the tables. Set up their own societies, their own cities and things. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Turning the tables on mm. the people that people are doing it. What I'm going to do right, in this, in the character generation, so it's... It's it's the same as Tunnels and Trolls, but as a player character, what you can do, you can choose from a list the character that you you can play. (laughs) Yes. Or you use a pack of cards like the ones I've got. Oh, right, yeah. Okay. And you can pick from it 
the monster you're going to be. Okay. okay. So we'll take it in I'll turns. Just, I'll just pick one. Oh, you want me to do this, do you? Oh, I see. I see what you're trying to do here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let me draw you. Go on. That's that's yours. This mine, is it? Yeah. Okay. And I've got... So this is our adventuring party. Are you ready? I've got... What have you got? I've got an eight of diamonds. Eight of diamonds. Eight of diamonds. Is a a night gaunt. A night gaunt? Yeah, because this is prefigures Call of Cthulhu, but it has Shoggoths. A night gaunt, isn't it? It does, doesn't it? Yeah, it does have shockers for night gaunt. Yeah. 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 So a night gaunt. Night, night gaunt. Okay, and I've got the King of Diamonds. Uh, Balrog. Balrog? Okay. A night gaunt and, and a Balrog. Balrog. Kind of friends. I, I, how does that work? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what? I always worry about Balrogs. What, what what's going on? What 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 motivates them? What gets them out of bed yeah, in the morning? I'm not sure. I don't even know all they are half the time. Sometimes, like what are they like? Demonic, fire demon things or yeah. big trolls? What are they? They seem, yeah. seems to be right vague. What a Balrog is in the role play world. The yeah. one in Lord of the Rings in the film that's that's a Balrog, isn't it? But it's like a kind of demonic thing, isn't it? They must have the problems, mustn't they? They must have their issues. Well, the main problem is what are we? <laughs> that's that's. First problem, isn't it? I'm not quite sure we are. <laughs> so misrepresented in film and books. You know, they, they've been there for a long time, haven't they? Yeah. On their own? Yeah, maybe, maybe they have problems finding a mate. There's not many of them, is there? They're rare. Yeah, Again, D&D, number appearing. Yeah. Frequency, very rare, uncommon. They used to do that, didn't they? Yeah. They had the kind of telling you how rare these things were. Maybe the Night Gaunt and the Balrog go looking for a mate yeah well the, the night guard could be summoned by the balrog to help go into to, to the, seek the, out the, the night guard's like a kind of dating agency yeah monster dating agency yeah, yeah. like tinder swipe left swipe <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's going to be my name in my night guard tinder tinder and swipe left <laughs> That's the quest to go and find a Balrog mate. Yeah. Balrogs are dying out. They're like pandas. Yeah. Very, 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 very scary pandas <laughs> that would eat you, but they're still like a panda. They oh. can't find a mate, and even when they do, they're not quite really in the mood. Very romantic. Courtship. Yeah, romantic. Candlelit dinners. Yeah. It's like the candles themselves. Well, like they're fire like demons, will not they? A panda, it's like yeah. a display. Yeah. Yeah. So you could have an adventure with uh, a <laughs> night gaunt and a Balrog. Seeking a mate. It's very TNT though, isn't it? Because there's an element of the absurd to it, isn't it? That that's that's very in keeping with Tunnels and Trolls, isn't yeah. it? That sense of the ridiculous, that's kind of a sense of humour to it. That you could do so what Monsters Monsters provides is a village, so part of it is a village for you to go and raid. Oh, with right, all the it? all the people in it. Yeah, kill them. And kill them. Well, <laughs> well this, is, this is what I want to get to, because... Mm. You know, we're saying about um, features and, you know, the, you know, in, in D&D and RuneQuest to some extent, you're driven by the fluff, aren't you? You're mm. different because there's fluff telling you that, I don't like calling it fluff. No, so no, the, there's, a, there's, the, there's, there's cultural stuff, there's stuff telling you that you are odd and different. Yeah, whereas... But, but what this does, it gives you experience points for behaving like a monster. So, yeah, 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 that's yeah. a good idea, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. A reward system for being a monster. 
Yeah, so if you want to be, it, to get experience points, you get, um, it, for eating stuff, yeah. you get the equivalent of the strength back as uh, experience points. So you can level up by eating more people. That's quite that's a good idea, though, isn't it? To yeah. make you behave in a monstrous way. Yeah. Where you don't have to buy into some cultural things. There's a mechanic there. There's a mechanic, basically, in the game that makes you behave monstrously. The reward system. If you take prisoners, mm. you get rewarded uh, experience points, but only if they're attractive. <laughs> so if they're... they're this, was, this was written in the 70s, wasn't it? <laughs> it actually says, no, no points for ugly people. Yeah. Right, yes, beautiful princess, yeah. fine. But oh, ugly princess, just bite her head off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lovely. <laughs> Well, I think it's sort of replicate the uh, the stories, aren't they? Yes, you, of course. Yeah, we'll, I get the joke. We'll cut some slides. Essentially, but well, it's essentially a joke, isn't it? It's yeah. a joke, isn't it? Because of that, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful princesses in towers. <laughs> right, let's say uh, or princes, princes. Yeah, that, that's you know. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's uh, draw again. Okay, let's see what we get. There All right. We and you shuffle these seven of diamonds what have you got jack of hearts <laughs> okay come on break it to me gently what am I you are a living statue a living statue oh, right okay, okay. Uh, I'm a giant slug <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're not in any hurry to get us to this village that would just spoil no, I don't. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be in a hurry, would I? I'd just stand still for a bit. <laughs> I'd be fine. As a living statue. You'd be good in a, uh, taking over a village, though, wouldn't it? A living statue, because yeah, you'd like take one out, take one out, be a statue. Yeah, you'd be like one of them angel things in the Doctor Who, wouldn't you? Yeah, mm. yeah. Be all right. What um, <laughs> what are you what are you a statue of? It um, could be a slug. A statue could... of a slug and a real slug. Yeah. You I could be a, a statue of. I said that's ridiculous. I mean, as if, as if it's not. And as if none of it. Up until this point, none of it's ridiculous. But apparently, if I have a statue of a slug, I find that ridiculous. <laughs> but the rest of it's not been ridiculous. Maybe you're, <laughs> you're an ancestor. You're a statue of an ancestor. Yes. A slug, the slug's ancestor. <laughs> yeah. They're all the same. What? Let's sing are, are you. Are you, are you you're going a bit far with the, back, the character background. Well, you need more character background to these than you give to one of your normal characters in, in one of my games. You never give any blooming effort to them. I'm look, look at you. What's, your, what's my motivation? Flipping method <laughs> playing a slug. <laughs> what's, your, what's your motivation? Does a slug have motivation? Well, it must have. But, this is, what I, but that's, this is an issue, isn't it? Because I would say that as a giant slug, you're playing a fairly mindless monster aren't you I mean I, any slugs listening I apologise if they're pondering the mysteries of the universe but they don't look like they are I doubt they are you know you're playing a mindless monster aren't you as opposed to a monster like your balrog the balrog think alright your balrog's got a degree of intellect hasn't it but a giant as a giant slug well so, so when they come giant the brains will the brains get bigger and get therefore bigger. they become geniuses <laughs> Is that, that what you're saying? Comparatively, that yeah. what you're saying? They may be pondering the... the they might be. Who's to say that they aren't an alien race who prefigured human beings? So you're not a giant slug, you're an alien. 
looks like a slug, but he's mistaken for a slug, but he's actually an alien. Who's to say that slugs aren't aliens? Well, me, for one. (laughs) How have they got here? In a spaceship? What are they? What are they do? Why have they not taken over the world? Why are they? Why are they drowning in beer and shriveling up with salt? But but oh, we've got to find the spaceship. Then we'll there we show these humans. It might have been a storm. It might have been a space storm. Oh, an astral storm. They've been they've been drifted in on the solar winds. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And on the other hand, though, it could be just like a kind of mindless mollusk type thing, couldn't it? Yeah. Which you're trying to give a character background to. I, <laughs> I, I can see this working. This I can see you know a whole new um, role playing game, slugs and snails. Yeah, yeah, slugs and statues. Slugs, slugs and statues. <laughs> slugs and statues. Yeah, yeah, all right. If you want to, <laughs> slugs and statues. I mean, it's meant to be fun. So well, of course, yeah. And is, I, think, I think it works like that. It of does. course, oh yeah, I think it does, doesn't it? There's a sense of humour to it. I don't think he's not really trying to replicate some deep role-playing experience. That's not to say there's not innovations. Mm. Apparently, because, you yes. know, Vampire of the Masquerade, which I'm going to call that, it... That's what we'll call, we'll call it now. Um, ...has this, uh, the new version has a hunger mechanic. Yeah, and that's yeah, supposed yeah. to drive people. You know, this is, this is way ahead. As, as, I mean, just, we've said this about TNT, haven't we, that it's ahead of its time. And Monsters, Monsters is also ahead of its time because it... It breaks the mould, doesn't it? As I said, if you if you compare it at the time, if you put it side by side with D and D or advanced D and D, let's call it advanced D and D, is is very kind of um, very conformist in a way, isn't it? So it says monsters are bad, and ju- well, as I said earlier, just to justify that, they're going to have alignments to make it very very clear that they're very bad and they're all bad, and they're allowed. You can kill them, and that's the way the world is. Whereas what tunnels and trolls does. And by turns, monsters, monsters does. It kind of upsets that world, doesn't it? Throws it into the air a bit. Yeah. Breaks the mould. Whereas D and D is very, like I said, it's, very, it's kind of very conformist. It's very, it's on a very straight road. Your your adventurers, heroes, and monsters. They're generally the monsters are evil, and and also that thing of chaotic evil as well. So it's not just evil. A lot of them are chaotic evil, yeah. which suggests that they're a sort of mindless evil rabble. Yeah. Rather, they're not even evil, they're not lawful evil, clever, they're just a mindless rabble, aren't they? Yeah. And that in itself does monsters a bit of a disservice, doesn't it? Yeah. They're, they're just fair game, really. And But Monsters, Monsters doesn't do that. Which allows you to be a snail and a statue, D. Mm. Yeah. Giant snail venturing out. Giant snail, no. Are you slug or a snail? A slug. A slug. A giant slug. Snail'd be better. Get some armour, wouldn't you? <laughs> and your house as well. Go with look everywhere you go. A giant snail. A, 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 a giant snail. snail. Slugs are homeless snails. <laughs> giant snail venturing <laughs> out. Yeah. With the statue of its Rand great, its great, back. great. Round his back, saying, hurry up. Yeah. You go any quicker. <laughs> <laughs> to the salt marsh. Is a giant slug ever going to catch anybody? <laughs> I mean, it's giant, so you see it coming. And you say, what's that? It's a giant slug. Oh, what should we do? We should run away. Never going to catch us. No. Simple as that. <laughs> Not a very threatening monster. No. Well, I enjoyed that, uh, Blythe. 
Okay. Until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks to Ken Santandre. It was a great privilege to spend some time in the troll cave with him. And there'll be more next time. There'll be a chat about his experience of getting the band back together to create Deluxe TNT, Stormbringer, and much more about what he's working on now. If you'd like a more detailed page-by-page examination of Monsters Monsters, then listen to episode 16 of Save for Half podcast. DM Mike, DM Liz and their crew do a great job of discussing the rules and providing some context for the game. Also, a recent edition of What Would the Smart Party Do? The UK's premier RPG podcast. Mm. Episode 99 is a review of RPGs of the 1970s. They provide a whistle-stop tour of some of the games that were released in the decade. They don't recognise Monsters Monsters, so we're very much the supplement to Baz and Gazzy's superior knowledge. John Hancock is the Grognard Files TNT correspondent and he's helped with the preparation for this episode. Thanks, John. If you'd like to listen to some Monsters Monsters actual play featuring Benny the Shoggoth, well, hello, you can still find Watson Hall recording. Please make sure you also subscribe to James Holloway's Monster Man podcast too, as it's really inventive, fun and clever. The link to all of these can be found in the show notes. Ken also contributed an article to Grogzine 18 about Monsters Monsters, illustrated with a fantastic, specially commissioned artwork by Liz Danforth. You can still see the article in PDF if you join the Patreon campaign that supports this podcast, covering the costs and the different projects that we run alongside it. Hard copies of the Grogzine 19 are finally going to land this month as a gift to our Patreon supporters. Look out on the side thegrognardfiles.com for more details on our fanzine festival. Thank you all for your support. We'll give a shout out to the new patrons next time. We'll be back next time with some more. You might want to try and get hold of a copy of At The Earth's Core. It might come in handy. Until then... Adios, amigos.